This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, six million plus new filings for unemployment from American workers. We'll hear from former Fed Governor Dan Trullo. There really is no precedent for essentially shutting down sectors of the economy with the attendant damage that uh, may be harder to undo. The head of a New York area hospital discusses virus preparedness and a possible new approach in care. We are basically preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. And the drugs that may or may not work in COVID treatment. Dr. Scott Gottlieb joins us. This virus isn't going away and it's going to change our lives until we have a therapeutic that can vanquish it. It's Thursday, April 2nd, 2020. Squawk Pot begins right now. Good morning, everyone. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. First up today on the podcast, one big number we'll all be talking about, 6.6 million. That's how many Americans filed new claims for unemployment benefits in the last week, according to the Labor Department. That brings to 10 million, the number of new filers in the last two weeks. For context, before the coronavirus shut down major parts of the U.S. economy, the highest week for new claims was 695,000. And that was back in 1982. The Great Recession high in March 2009 was 665,000. Here's CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman breaking down the numbers on Squawk Box. Cue Becky to uh, blame me for looking for a silver lining here. Uh, but uh, here, here's one thing, which is, uh, A, some success at the state bureaucracy level of processing these claims. This could be a big problem if they couldn't process them. This means that people who are out of work are receiving assistance. You want that to happen because you don't want people to suffer when they don't have to. This is what the jobless claims uh, program is all about. It is the first safety net we have. And the idea that people are getting claims is a good thing. And now they will be eligible for additional claims. So if you're looking for a silver lining, I think that's the best thing as possible. We are purposely shutting down the economy. And we want to be able to help people to do that because there is a public benefit on the other side of this that I don't think we can underscore enough, which is stopping the spread of the disease and stopping future uh, economic fallout from the spread of the disease that would inevitably be worse if we didn't do this stuff. So that's one good thing here. The other thing I'm looking for, and I don't have it yet, which is I'm trying to get the state by state, and I'm going to just put my glasses on for a second because I want to see New York. Yeah, New York is still low here, guys. It's high in that they finally got, um, there's 366,000 for New York. Um, my guess is that there's going to be several million more coming from New York. Let me just look at California while, while this uh, is here now. California is well ahead. They have 878,000. So they're doing a better job in California. My guess is um, that what's happening at the state jobless claims level here is that they're also hurt by the idea that they have people with the virus trying to stay healthy themselves. That could impinge their ability. Let me just look at one other state, which was Michigan, 311,000. Those are the big states right there. And New Jersey would be another one, 205. So the bad news, the other side of the silver lining is the cloud is very large. There is more to come here. I would not be surprised to see several million more. Um, and we're talking about an unemployment rate, folks, that could be already in the double digits, if not approaching that some way. If I just layer in the continuing claims plus the six today, uh, plus the uh, uh, additional um, unemployment claims, uh, sorry, additional uh, unemployed, uh, we could be near 10% already. 
Hey, Steve, I'm, I'm with you on that. I think there is a silver lining because it's not news to us that there are all these people who need to file for unemployment. Right. It, it's good news that the states are processing that. I agree with you 100 percent. The, the, the question is whether this SBA program works in keeping people close or keeping people employed uh, and whether or not they get unemployed and they're available to come back to work when this thing turns with the question of, of when it happens and, and whether or not that disease or, or sorry, the, the spread of the virus, the percent testing positive, whether that seems to be cresting at any point in time here. Joining us right now for a closer look at how coronavirus is impacting the U.S. economy, let's welcome Daniel Tarullo. He's a former Federal Reserve governor who's now a Harvard law professor. And uh, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it, Governor Tarullo. What do you think of uh, the numbers that we just saw? Uh, What do you think of the numbers we just saw? uh, 6.6 million new additional jobless claims after the 3.3 we saw last week. That's an incredible number. Well, you know, Becky, my first reaction was, Back in back in early 2009, uh, when we were seeing 600,000 uh, increase in unemployment, now we're talking jobless claims here rather than unemployment. But when you see numbers that are uh, of that order of magnitude, um, it becomes clear just how steep a decline we are uh, suffering right now. And there's really no precedent for thinking about this. And I think that what it really does is to reinforce the sense of a lot of people that the prospect of a V-shaped motion here with going down rapidly and then coming up rapidly uh, may unfortunately not turn out to be what we see and instead we'll we'll face a much tougher road back. Why do you think that is? How, How do you start to think through the damage that we're seeing at this point? Well, obviously, obviously nobody knows, and, and the uncertainty is something that everybody in markets and government is, uh, uh, is emphasizing. But first, as I said a moment ago, there really is no precedent for essentially shutting down sectors of the economy uh, with the attendant damage that uh, may be harder to undo. It's, it's not like laying off a, a quarter of your workforce because revenue has dropped by a quarter. This is, this is going to zero revenue. Uh, second, I think uh, there's the possibility, if not the probability, that we're going to have recurring preventive measures, such as some form of social distancing, which will mean hitting the brakes, um, maybe not, certainly not, we hope, the way it's being done nationwide right now, but hitting the brakes in certain areas, certain regions, certain sectors, perhaps for some time to come. Uh, third, the monetary and fiscal policy instruments that are available to us are are going to be stretched. They are already being stretched to the limit, and thus they may be um, less successful, not unsuccessful, but less successful in effecting a a quick bounce back. And finally, there's the question as to whether some of the longer-term trends in the economy, such as declining productivity, um, will be accelerated by this kind of shock. Uh, You recall after the great financial crisis when People kept referring to headwinds uh, that were stopping the economy from getting back to pre-crisis trend growth. Uh, And after a while, people realized maybe they weren't just headwinds that were going to abate, but that it was uh, an indefinite uh, uh, decrease in growth potential. And there may be something like that here as well. So, again, I, I I wouldn't argue strongly that the that the uh, likely outcome is going to be a long, slow, painful recovery. But I think it's just as much a chance as something resembling a V-shaped recovery. 
Hey, Governor Tarullo, you do think, though, that the, the, the stress test for the bank should be put off, correct? I mean, I guess this is enough of a stress test itself, what yeah. we're seeing. I think on balance, I would defer it. I'd defer it because the scenario that's being used now is obviously um, not going to approximate even closely what the banks are actually going to go through. Uh, it's not the same kind of stress. It's probably not the same level of stress. I think it would be a good thing for the risk managers at the banks to be thinking very hard about this set of stresses and crises rather than worrying about whether the, the stress test is going to uh, come out a particular way based on the old uh, on the scenario. So, yeah, on balance, I would delay it and have both the people at the Fed and in the banks focus like a laser beam on the problems that may be encountered as a result of what we're going through right now, keep the capital in the banks, and then later in the year, um, once hopefully things have calmed a bit, return to the stress test. Maybe they want to use the same scenario if things have really calmed down, maybe a different one. Governor Tarullo, I want to thank you for your time today. It's been good talking to you. Worldwide coronavirus infections now number more than 900,000, and 216,000 of those are in the United States. The U.S. death toll has topped 5,100. Doctors and hospitals across the U.S. in many cases are racing against time, hoping to find a drug that may be able to treat serious patients. For more on therapeutics treating COVID-19, here's Joe Kernan with Scott Gottlieb, former FDA commissioner and CNBC contributor. I don't know, doctor, when, uh, and I just touched my face, I, I do a lot of uh, hand washing, but, uh, you know, it's just impossible uh, not to have time. But when I say 941,000 um, and 216,000 in the United States, are those useful numbers at all? Well, look, they're tragic measures of the morbidity and mortality associated with this disease. I think what we should be looking at is the rate of new infections and whether or not the rate of new infections and the growth is going up or down. You see some slowing in the curves with respect to New York and a steeping of the curves with respect to Louisiana and Florida in terms of how long it's taking to double the number of new cases. And that's what I'd be focused on right now. Where is it accelerating? Where are new infections accelerating? And where are they decelerating? They seem to be decelerating in New York. Now, we don't have a lot of days of data right now, but there is some positive signals. There are some positive signals in Massachusetts as well. So some of the states that were early to take mitigation steps are showing positive signs. Certainly San Francisco and Seattle also are indicating that they're moving in the right direction. That all sounds uh, pr pretty positive. And, and then I was going to talk about Italy. I, I'm seeing at least that, you know, looking at bar charts, there have been three or four, or even five days that seem to indicate maybe it's, there's some improvement uh, in Italy, but then I, I just hearken back to to China. What some of the the some of the conjecture that has come out recently? How many people left Wuhan? How many people total that they talked about that they're starting to to say, yeah, maybe asymptomatic cases were higher. I, I don't know whether we can count on the uh, what happened in China with with the numbers, although people are are back to work. But if things are more positive in Italy, that's something to be uh, at least heartened about. That's right. I mean, Italy looks like they're they're peaking. Um, you know, the top isn't a straight line up and a straight line down. It's going to bounce around at the top for a number of days and maybe a week or more. Italy does seem to be at a plateau right now. Spain may be decelerating as well. So, you know, the epidemic will run its course in those countries and it's going to run its course here. I think the concern in the United States, though, is it's such a big country 
and we are, we're going to have so many hotspots, so many epicenters that they're not going to all be going up and down at the same time. So you can't look at the national trend. What you need to do is look at it regionally because a national trend can be showing a decline because New York is coming down its epidemic curve, but other places could be rising steeply up theirs. So you really need to look at the southwest, the Pacific Northwest, the Northeast, um, you know, the Southeast. And the Southeast right now looks like the most concerning region, if I was to pick one. Florida, Georgia, you know, parts of Alabama, Louisiana, if you consider that Southeast, but the South, the Sun Belt, those, those states look to be very concerning in terms of the growth in new cases. Doctor, are, are these, some of these small trials of these uh, drugs that we're seeing, hydroxychloroquine, I, I don't know whether to put any faith in them, but you see some positive stuff. Once again, it's on Twitter or the Internet, so I, I take it with a, a, a big grain of salt. But, you know, I've seen things saying 71 patients, uh, zero intubated uh, after taking the drug. Do you, do you see anything that makes you think that the evidence is starting to, uh, to, to look like it helps with a SARS-type respiratory um, virus, the hydroxychloroquine, or are you right. still not willing to say that? Well, look, I, we're going to need a drug here. We're not going to have a vaccine for a number of years. We really need to figure that a vaccine might be two years away. And this virus isn't going away. This virus is going to continue to bounce around the world, and it's going to change our lives until we have a therapeutic that can vanquish it or really take the fear away from um, this virus spreading in the background. A drug can do that, and we can have a drug in the near term. Even if we can't have a vaccine, we can have a therapeutic by the summer or the fall. I think it's going to require global regulators to take on a much different role. What you're seeing is the NIH partnering with companies to try to develop a vaccine. NIAID and Tony Fauci's group at the NIH are partnering with Moderna. They've made a bet on a vaccine, and they're working to accelerate the development of that product. We really need to do the same thing with therapeutics as well, and we're not doing that right now. We need to partner with the companies that have the most promising therapies and try to drive them through development and really have a sense of urgency around this. In the same way like the oncology division at FDA has had a sense of urgency about trying to bring promising cancer drugs for unmet medical needs through development more quickly, coming up with different regulatory approaches to try to do that. We need to do the same thing here because we need a therapeutic by the fall. If we don't have it, this virus is going to come back in the fall, and it's going to sh continue to shut down parts of our lives. This is going to circulate in the background. The consumer is not going to bounce back. People are going to be afraid to go out, and we're going to continue to see people succumb to this virus. But there's no so reason we can't have the technology that, a, that would that, dramatically change was it. That a yes, no, was that a yes, no, or a maybe about hydroxychloroquine? On hydroxychloroquine I, I, that was well, a long answer, but... I yeah, well, look, on hydroxychloroquine specifically, there's some small studies right now. They look interesting. They certainly um, show some promise. That There's a 60-patient study that you're probably pointing to that was out of China. Look, these are early studies. I wouldn't, I wouldn't place all my bets with hydroxychloroquine. There's a rich pipeline. There's a lot of drugs that show activity right now. That hydroxychloroquine may work, but okay. I will say that it's being used pretty widely in Italy and the U.S., and if it was having a very robust treatment effect, we probably would have seen it. So if it's positive... And it's having an effect. It's not an effect that's very apparent. All right, Dr. Gottlieb, once again, uh, thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, the head of a New York area hospital with hundreds of patients who are positive for coronavirus and hundreds more who might be. There's no doubt about it that we're being stretched in terms of our labor pool, in terms of our capacity. It would be very safe to say that we are pushing the limit in terms of our resources. We'll be right back. This is Squawk Pod. This is me. It's, it's you. you, Joe. Yep. Good. Welcome back. To Here's Squawk Joe Kernan. Joining us now, Carol Gomes. Uh, Carol is CEO of Stony Brook uh, University. 
uh, Hospital uh, on New York's Long Island. Thank you for joining us uh, this morning. We appreciate it. Last time, I think, the, the last update we had was that the hospital um, had roughly 70 COVID-19 patients out of, what I think, 624 beds. Can you update us on that, yes. uh, Ms. Gomes? Sure. Well, we're well over that number. We're much closer to the 200 number with an additional nearly 200 PUIs or what we call persons under investigation, meaning specifically that they are in the process of being tested. So we've seen a significant surge in the number of positive cases. And in addition, we've also increased our capacity well beyond that 624. As you've probably heard, uh, the governor of New York has requested for all CEOs at New York hospitals to increase surge capacity by 100 percent, which means we would have to double our beds. And we've been actively engaged in the process of expanding our bed capacity over the last three weeks with a continuation of that process over the next several weeks ahead of us. When do you expect uh, the apex is uh, what the governor has indicated? Is that what you're seeing? And how would you uh, characterize the, the state of, uh, of, of how everyone's handling this? All of your medical professionals, the amount of equipment they have, uh, how chaotic is it at this point? Or is it still uh, prior to the apex? You're still doing pretty well in, in most respects. Well, there's no doubt about it that we're being stretched in terms of our labor pool, in terms of our capacity. Uh, these are very ill patients that require intubation and ventilation. And so it would be very safe to say that we are pushing the limit in terms of our resources, but we're steadily focused on our plan to increase capacity. Our goal is to increase to 235 intensive care beds from a, a much lower number of 65 so it's putting stress on the system, uh, for sure. And in terms of our staff, they are coming to work. Stony Brook Medicine individuals, healthcare members of our team are so laser focused on the mission to provide the best care possible with the resources we have. Yes, it is true that there are difficulties in terms of our supply chain. Uh, activities, but we are actively engaged in doing everything humanly possible within our control to obtain the necessary resources and supplies to keep not only our patients safe, but also our team members safe. And if in, in terms of the increase in, in COVID positive patients, any uh, slowing in that at all in terms of the increase? Do you foresee yes. having two patients on a single a ventilator? That, that has not happened yet, but it's something that you would imagine that will be something you do at, at Stony Brook? Yes. Uh, we are basically preparing for the worst and hoping for the best. So we've been a bit ahead of the curve in terms of the preparation of the sharing of vents. Our respiratory therapy team has worked very closely with biomedical engineering and our engineering department at Stony Brook University. We are really tapping the potential and the, the, the level of research, innovation, and creativity and ingenuity here at Stony Brook University and Stony Brook Medicine, tapping into every conceivable resource that we have in order to try to stay ahead of the curve. And I apologize, I didn't answer your question about the apex. So, We've heard on numerous occasions at various press conferences and even within our own team's statisticians uh, 
that the apex may be coming in 7 to 14 days, in 14 to 21 days. I've heard a model yesterday where it may be 14 to 45 days. So we are seeing an escalation in cases, and we are seeing an increased uh, number of patients being intubated more readily closer to our emergency department than we really wish to see. So we are seeing this escalation. There's just no way to know, honestly, when this apex will arrive. But again, the Stony Brook Medicine team is laser focused on ensuring that this surge plan is active, ensuring that we're focused and ensuring that we're hitting the targets and goals on a weekly basis to accommodate the surge. Carol, last question. Uh, Carol, has, have any doctors at Stony Brook administered any of these therapeutics, whether it's uh, the, the remdesivir or, or hydroxy or chloroquine? Do you, do you have any of that at this point? Have you asked for any? We do have it. Um, we're working very closely with our pharmacy department, with our antimicrobial stewardship team, and with uh, various infectious disease physicians, as well as our ICU physicians, to ensure that we are utilizing evidence-based literature to support treatment and uh, using appropriate medical guidelines for such treatment. We also are engaged in various clinical trials and protocols to provide uh, whatever treatment and pharmaceuticals that we have available to us that have been proven in, in other settings. So we're trying to avail ourselves of any opportunity to fight this good fight. You had trouble finding the words for, for how to thank the medical professionals. We can't, we, you know, we keep trying, but just let everyone know uh, that, you know, how much it's appreciated. It's, it's you know, just goes beyond the pale. But, but thank you, uh, thank Carol you. Gomes, thank you CEO so much. of Stony Brook University. You're, you're welcome. Squawk Pod, we'll be right back. Welcome back to Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick with some booze news. Nielsen is out with some new data on alcohol sales as the infection control efforts ramped up in America. Sales were up by 55% in the week ending March 21st. Tequila, gin, and premixed cocktails led the way with a 75% increase year over year. Wine sales were up 66%, and beer sales were up by 42%. Probably not all that surprising. People start to Hoarding things, thinking about hunkering down for a month or so, and guess what they need to line up for. Although, Joe, I did think it was very interesting that in New Jersey, liquor stores are, are quantified or they're, they're considered to be essential businesses. Those are the ones that are still open now, too. Well, duh. <laughs> I think that's to keep people from uprising, right, to make sure they actually do stay home. Um, I, I was, you know, slowly easing back to a little bit of, uh, I don't know, sarcasm or levity, but, but we have been uh, opening wine occasionally, uh, too, Beck. I don't know. I mean, we are all, yeah. you know, watching Me the, too. I'm watching the, the press conference and it's just, there are times where it seems to be a little bit therapeutic, right? It seems to be a little therapeutic. So Yeah, there are times uh, that understand. it does that and other times I, I got to shut it off. It's like so much. Oh, that. No, I meant the alcohol. No, no, the t- press conferences oh, aren't, yeah, that's aren't always. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thank you for listening to this podcast from CNBC's Squawk Box, hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. Hey, show us how you listen to Squawk Pod while you're social distancing. Tweet us at Squawk CNBC. And if you don't already, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you listen. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. 